0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. My guest today hails from Sweden. Her name is Anita Ust. She's at the Linköping University. And we're going to be talking about epigenetics and the possibility of uh, inheriting epigenetic marks from you know, your, your father or mother, which is super interesting. So Anita, thanks for coming.
1: Hi, Richard. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, I spoke to, uh, I believe it was Nessa Carey she wrote a book on epigenetics and in her book, I guess the, the common wisdom was, or maybe still is that, um, you know, when, uh, almost all epigenetic marks that are gathered during, you know, the, the parent's lifetime are removed when, uh, you know, at conception. Um, yeah. but uh, what what's your story of epigenetics, you know, maybe introduce the concept a little bit and let's, let's talk about it and we'll, we'll go from there.
1: Well, yeah. So epigenetics, it's, uh, like the control over the genes. So it's, everything that is not in the genes, you can say. Uh, So each cell will have all the genes that we have, but they will not use all the the genes at the same time. So some genes will be silenced and some will be used. Uh, So that is one kind of epigenetics that uh, is controlling the cell specificity. But another kind of epigenetics, the, the kind that I'm interested in, is the one where you see that Uh, the offspring will inherit some information or they will change their phenotype depending on the parents' um, environment. So, for example, what the parents eat or if they are stressed. And uh, we can see that that might give some um, changes in the next generation as uh, obesity or stress sensitivity.
0: It makes sense because, um, I mean, to me, all of life is about continual adaptation. So mm-hmm. if the parents are exposed to an environment that needs to be adapted to, you know, through epigenetic changes, through gene regulation, it makes sense that they'd want their offspring to be able yeah, to survive. So
1: yeah, so when it comes to starvation, it's been shown in several species, including humans, that if the parents starve, uh, and in humans it's been studied mostly in, in, um, in women, that if the mother starves, then the children will be born a bit smaller, And then as they grow up, they will have a little bit higher risk of being obese as adults. Uh, And the idea then is that this child would be kind of primed to live in an environment where there is little food. But if then it grows up in an environment where there is plenty of food, it will become obese, that it will eat a little bit more and move a little bit less. Uh, But we don't really know if that is true or not. It just makes sense in a way. But when we did these experiments in flies, in fruit flies, uh, we did a a dietary intervention in the male fly, the father, and we could see also that if we were starving the the father before uh, mating, the offspring became a little bit more fat. But when we starved them, they didn't survive longer. The contrary, they died faster. So, at least in in my model system, I don't see that it's an. That they they gain anything from it so so it's it's not sure that this epigenetic inheritance is a a way to adapt but but i agree with you that it makes sense and and maybe maybe we'll find out that there are also some benefits with this but so far i think we're not there yet
0: well maybe the adaptation is a forced maladaptation or Mm. just a, a forced adaptation that just you know the organism hasn't figured out how to make it beneficial. So maybe that's why they're, they're more susceptible to starvation. Maybe, you know, again, it's all adapting, but it just can't, can't do it in the, in the right way to benefit from it somehow.
1: Yeah, it can also be that also then during stress, you just allow a bigger diversity in the next generation and just hope that some of it will be good. Maybe some are bad, but maybe some will be good. And that is the chance that you can take then if it's a, a stressful situation.
0: So there's so I much.
1: Thought,
0: um, I thought we had a uh, an unintentional example in the Dutch starvation winter. I think it was like forty one or 1941, 1942. Yes. around there. It, they seem to have kept good logs. And I thought that the um the negative effects of the starvation went down two or three generations, right?
1: Well, I think we're just seeing the second generation, so it's too early to say the third or fourth
0: or Four? Oh, I thought that there was uh it was at the point where there were some grandchildren born that uh, were still affected, but
1: uh so it's in down several generations, but I think maybe it also depends on how how severe the the intervention is. So if there's a severe starvation or it's repeated starvation for several generations, maybe then you will have a longer effect through generations until it's washed out. So I think it's, uh, it's work in, in C. elegans that's done most of the molecular work around how these memories are retained and when they're kind of washed out. So there are probably processes just both to establish them and then to reset them by time.
0: So tell me about your work with uh, with flies. Why flies? And uh, what what are you hoping to figure out?
1: Mm, so flies, flies, they they uh, get a the new generation really fast. So compared to humans, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very fast. It's only 10 days. Um, and with them, you can do a lot of experiments and you can uh, uh, manipulate our genes to try to figure out the uh, molecular mechanism behind um, things like epigenetic inheritance.
0: I was going to joke and say, has anyone accused you of having a fly-by-night operation? <laughs> You're the first. Well, so what are you trying to figure out specifically with the flies? What kind of stresses? and What kind of, uh, are you trying to figure out the mechanism by which epigenetics happen? Or is that well understood? Like, what's your focus there?
1: Yeah. Well, so my background, when I did my PhD, I was working with human adipocytes and type 2 diabetes. So I guess that's where my heart is, that I want to understand how metabolic disease arises. And I think maybe some of the obesity we see in humans maybe have their roots in epigenetic phenomena. So I'm thinking that if I can figure out the the mechanisms in fruit flies, maybe then I can translate these uh, findings to humans and hopefully find uh, ways to cure human metabolic disease.
0: So what have you noticed so far with the flies? What kind of stresses have you put them under and what happened? And how long did the effect last?
1: So for the flies, I've been only looking at um, different dietary dietary interventions and I've been modulating the amount of sugar. Uh, So I've been giving them as little as three grams per liter up to 300 grams per liter. And 300 grams per liter, that is like a third almost of the food is sugar. Then, So it it, would be spanned from starvation to feast. Uh, And we see that it is under and overnutrition will give an increased risk for their uh, offspring to be obese
0: so what is the um all right so undernutrition what does it do to the fly it's probably obvious but and then what does overnutrition do to the current generation that's experiencing mm. the feeding what does it do to them and then what does it do to the subsequent generation
1: yeah so for the exposed generation it will also make them fat so fruit flies has Very similar metabolism to humans, actually. So when they eat extra sugar, they will store it as fat. So if you will feed them a diet that will have a lot of sugar, they will become fat. Uh, But the fruit flies that will get very little sugar in their food, they will will starve. So in a week or maybe less, four or five days, they will die. Um, But we do the dietary intervention uh, for just two days. So it's a very short uh, time.
0: What is a? I guess it's kind of funny, but what does a fat fly like? Can they fly, or do they do anything that? Uh, like, how fat do they get? Do they gain like I I don't know, one gram of weight in their fat?
1: <laughs> you can you can see a fat fly trying to fly, right? You can visualize it. No, but but we cannot see that they get fat, not like humans. You cannot measure their their waist. Um. So so what we do is that we smash them up and we measure the triglycerides, the fat with a colorimetric assay. Uh, and we divide it with their weights. So we do like a fly BMI. Oh,
0: interesting. So the, the flies that are underfed, you know, that do do they get to the point where they can breed and create the next generation? The flies that are overfed seem to survive and do that. But what about the underfed ones that you, you've gotten? Yeah. So
1: we'll of them. Let them, yeah, we'll let them mate after two days. Uh, and they then there's still enough uh, power in them to to mate. But if we would wait four or five days, then they will die on this diet. So it's a se- it's a severe starvation, um, you know, just to the point that they are making it.
0: So what have you noticed about the progeny of the starved versus the fat flies? What's different about them is like what's observable that's different?
1: Yeah. So what we measured is the the amount of triglycerides, uh, how fat they are, and as I told you, it's a U shape. So Either under or over uh, eating will make the offspring a little bit fatter. When we look at the starvation tolerance, it's it's also U-shaped. So the the ones that are fatter actually dies faster. Um, but maybe what is more interesting is that epigenetic changes, and can see that the ones that are fatter they have a more open chromatin. So they uh, they seem to have uh, less uh, epigenetic markers of the kind that are are Increasing the heterochromatin, the the compact version.
0: Oh, so the flies that are fatter, their progeny, their progeny has more open chromatin. You said. Hmm. Yeah. So
1: actually, what is the
0: consequence of that? Does that mean that they're they they adapt faster? Or they adapt in uh, they maladapt or what? Like, what's your uh, observation from that?
1: Yeah. no, that we haven't tested yet, we don't know if they would adapt faster to any change. Uh, that I don't know, um, but we, what we have uh, noticed or what we did is that we reanalyzed some uh, data from human adipocytes, microarray data, and we also found that they had less of the enzymes creating this heterochromatin. So that would be a sign that they actually also have a more open chromatin, that human obese uh, uh, patients also have a more open chromatin. So we think that it's a conserved process
0: have you tried to uh, make multiple generations of fat flies? You know, maybe overfeed them for two days; they breed. Overfeed the the kids; they breed. Overfeed the grandchildren; they breed. Now, have yeah. you tried to take this down many generations to see if you can make like gigantic fat flies that don't fly?
1: <laughs> yeah, I should. No, we haven't done that yet. What we have done is that we we made one generation fat, and then just continued to have them on their standard food. Let them mate again and looked at the uh, their offspring, and then we didn't see an effect. But uh, what you what you suggest is a good experiment to do a repeated uh, intervention for for several generations. So so that would be actually be interesting to see if you repeated it over several generations, will you have a more like firm phenotype? then?
0: Yeah, I mean you can make a table. You know, if one generation is overfed. How long yeah. does that last before it dies yeah. out? And then two yeah. generations, three, and four, and all that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a a very good experiment. There are so many interesting things to to investigate, so it's just that you have to pick. (laughs) Each thing that you go for takes a a long time to to really test.
0: Well, I I mean, I guess, you know, it's just my assumption, but is it, I I would think it's cheap and easy and fast to experiment with the flies, but is it expensive to, uh, like, why can't you do an experiment that maybe isn't um, statistically robust but just do it to see directionally if you're getting a signal and then go deeper on that particular uh, variation.
1: Yeah, no, it would still be like maybe a year uh, of experiments because you have to repeat it several times to see that it was just not a random event. And uh, even though the fruit flies are not so expensive, the personnel that will do the experiment is... So it's still... uh, Each experiment you do is, is... Time-consuming, I think. I guess my interest has been more to look at the mechanism, how, how it works. So I've been very focused on looking at the, the paternal side. And one advantage when looking at paternal inheritance is that it must be a molecule that is retaining the sperm or the seminal fluid that when it comes into the egg, it's potent enough to, to start a new epigenetic uh, memory or situation.
0: Well, actually, um, well, this may complicate things. I just, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know who does this, but I'm reading a book on exosomes, mm-hmm. and I learned about it, at least in people, it's called prostosomes. So I mm-hmm. guess in, at least in humans, I have no clue if this happens in flies, but, you know, the prostate uh, mm-hmm. releases exosomes that really significantly change the action of sperm. Yes. So what if it's not in the sperm itself? What if there's something equivalent in the fly where another organ or another part of the fly Releases mm. something that carries the sperm that alters them completely, and it's not the sperm themselves that are altered. I guess that's but, what you'd have to figure out.
1: Yeah, but there there are there are data that suggests that the exosomes are actually taken up by the sperm, so that that the content of the exosomes are taken up by the sperm. We just made a human study that is published in PLOS Biology now. The 26th of december and then we did a high sugar dietary intervention in young lean healthy humans and we've been looking at the small rna in sperm and in this study we just did one plus one week of dietary intervention and we saw changes in the small rna content and we assume that this change is due to the exosomes that you're talking about
0: wow that's very short term oh interesting Um, I was wondering, uh, is there a, 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 you know, remember we talked about, I know you haven't done it yet, but I wonder if you'll see the effect of flies, for instance, are overfed for, you know, five generations, if the change locks in, and you can't get rid of it after that, and then no matter how many generations you go, the change just sticks there. Or if the change uh, gets more persistent, the more generations, you know, have been exposed to a certain way.
1: Yeah. Well, that would be really bad, right? because we know that overnutrition also gives uh, epigenetic changes in the next generation, so if we would have uh, several generations of overfeeding as we have now with the uh, obesity epidem- epidemics, uh, then it would be really bad if these epigenetic memories get like locked in um, i hope I hope not
0: yeah, I hope not either. I guess it's just it's a possibility you know
1: yeah but you can think about the other way that both my work in drosophila and humans they instead suggest that these are rapid effects so for for fruit flies i do the dietary intervention for two days and get an effect in the next generation for the human study we also did a short intervention just one plus one week and see changes in the small rna content in sperm so i think that maybe if it would be a benefit uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, it needs also to be dynamic. If epigenetic memories were to be locked, then you would lose this uh, dynamics or the, the possibility to respond to the environment.
0: It's also possible, too, that what if it goes on, you know, okay, so if it happens in one generation, the progeny don't do as well. You said they're not as resistant to starvation, and, you know, they're they're fatter. But mm. if it went on for I don't know, four or five generations, mm. you know, maybe it gets locked in, maybe it doesn't. But maybe the adaptation itself changes now. Maybe the mm. organism finds a way to benefit from the adaptation somehow mm. and not be frail because of it.
1: Yeah, well, it's possible. Yeah. Sure, I should do it.
0: <laughs> I know there's only so much funding in time. One thing mm. it does, I mean, one small thing that would benefit, at least right now from your research, is that people that, are going to, uh, you know, that want to conceive in the U.S. and they're using in vitro or if they're going to be a sperm donor or whatever it is, it seems like a sound protocol would be make sure that you eat as best you can, you know, for the men in, you know, the week or the month preceding your your donation or your capture of sperm to give your, your child the best chance of uh, coming out, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that is, that is a good assumption. So in the human study we did now, and I wanted to do similar intervention as we have done in flies. I wanted to look at the effect of high sugar, but as uh, we don't know what humans eat or they eat, so varied, varied diets, we wanted to put them on a, a similar baseline first. And to do that, we got calculated what they should eat according to the Nordic health recommendations. And so we collected samples before we started the study, after one week with a healthy diet, when we established the baseline, and then again after a high sugar uh, intake week. Uh, So we got three samples from the same guys. And what was surprising for us was that when we started, there were five of 15 guys that had a low sperm motility. So, how well the sperm are swimming. And uh, when we put them on the healthy diet they all recovered so by the end of this two week all 15 guys had a high sperm motility but in the beginning it was actually one third that had low close to the to the reference value yeah so the, that was interesting and a little bit scary that even for the young healthy guys one third had a low sperm motility when they started the study
0: well that's interesting you you wonder if um... You know, nature itself is trying to prevent those guys from uh, procreating, you know, by hurting their <laughs> sperm motility, you know, in a way, I mean, by, you know, by hurting their sperm motility, they're less likely to be able to, uh, you know, to get someone pregnant. So that it's, in a way, it's, um, you know, when they are healthy, the window for them or the ability for them to, you know, to get someone pregnant goes up, mm. which would make sense.
1: Yeah. So the sperm maturation process is uh- rather short so the the time to make a sperm the spermatogenesis is around 70 days in humans but the maturation process where they gain their abilities to swim that is just a few days so as you say it might be might might make sense that they react to what you eat at the moment so uh, if you eat if you're undernourished maybe they shouldn't be so good as they are when they are like eating well
0: have you um Hmm, that's interesting so what what other variations would you want to try in the human study to to figure out more of what's going on
1: yeah so first of all i think i would like to do it in in a bigger cohort so this is just 15 guys uh, and we controlled them controlled what they were eating very precise so it, it was still a big effort for us to do this study but i guess i would like to do it with with more people so that you can see that it's actually true um but I would like to see then if there are specific components in the food that affected the sperm motility. So now we just know that when we change the diet for them, we put them on a the food that is patients, they, they got a better sperm motility, but maybe there are specific components, um, but that we don't know. So, so it would be interesting to, to see a little bit more in detail what in the diet affected the sperm motility.
0: You could also look at exercise, sleep. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that I'm sure would all contribute. Yeah. Yes, you know, if, if yeah, sugar is doing right. it, then. Yeah. Hmm. Well, what, what's the end goal of doing this? You, you want to understand what's going on, but but why? You want to be able to provide advice to people that want to conceive, or I mean, how do you want to contribute to science by doing what you're doing?
1: Mm, I guess it's both. I think it's a fundamentally very interesting problem to solve, to, to understand how information is passed from one generation to the next. Um, but then I'm also interested in trying to, to understand how this is uh, coupled to metabolic disease. And now it looks like uh, this connection to metabolic disease and fertility is kind of intertwined. So it seems like they're like different sides of the same coin it would be nice to to be able to, to understand this mechanism and maybe help both male infertility but also maybe next generation's uh, metabolic health problems.
0: Well, I guess that's a phenomenon, right? Uh, I don't know if it's just in the U.S. or worldwide. I guess uh, men appear to have much uh, fewer sperm than they did years ago. And I don't know about the motility, but uh, it seems like infertility is becoming uh, more and more of a problem.
1: Yeah, it seems to drop in the same rate as the obesity is going up
0: yeah and your research may have the reason the key
1: yeah so it seems like they are interconnected somehow
0: did you look at also sperm count or you just looked at motility were there other factors about the sperm
1: we did look at sperm count and we didn't see that it changed
0: okay so this was just the short-term effect of the motility um did you well in people it's really not ethical to uh you know have an egg in there and introduce them In flies, are you able to, uh, you know, to capture a a sperm and an egg in a fly and see if they'll, uh, if conception will happen, you know, in a dish in vitro?
1: No, unfortunately not. Not so far. We cannot do that. Uh, So in mice, they can do that. We can do in vitro fertilization. So they can take out the egg and fertilize it in the dish. And in flies, we cannot do that yet. So I can work with different mutant males and see how it will affect it. And uh, can affect diet and, and other environmental parameters.
0: Have you analyzed the uh, the sperm motility of the flies? Or any other factors of the fly sperm, the sperm counts or anything?
1: Yeah, no, it's not so easy to do that in sperm. Because <laughs> fun fact about Drosophila sperm is that they are very long. So actually they're almost as long as they are as the fly. So that means that the sperm tail, they they get like intertwined. It's not so easy to get them to swim in a dish. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I know. Drosophila has the longest sperm in animal kingdom. They have longer sperm than humans.
0: So compared to their body size, they have like gigantic sperm? Yes. (laughs) That's weird. Okay. It's weird. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. So any um, any other particulars that you want to look at next or um, any realizations for the research that really surprised you?
1: I think what surprised me in the human study is that it seems like the motility and the small RNA in sperm is uh, uh, correlating. So it's kind of pointing to the exosomes that you were talking and this correlation okay. uh, kind of. To exosomes because exosomes are also known to be involved in the maturation of sperm when they are gaining their motility. So probably they will get factors that uh, make them able to swim, and they will deliver small RNA at the same time. So I think that was uh, interesting for for us now.
0: Hmm, interesting. Um, would you? I don't know if this is likely at all. Would you be able? Uh, so I didn't even know if we know in clinics that do in vitro fertilization you know, for human couples, um, do they video the fertilization or is it done just, you know, by a technician and it's not videoed? And if it was videoed or if it could be videoed, you know, obviously you wouldn't know the participants or anything, but what if you were able to correlate somehow, you know, uh, do a questionnaire on the men that were part of the in vitro fertilization and you got, I don't know, 500 in vitros that were videoed. Perhaps you could look and correlate motility under the microscope with you know, the person's diet or they're, uh, you know, I know it would be anecdotal and report self-reported, but maybe there's a way to find out what you want to find out that way.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe, but I'm thinking a little bit uh, in the line with uh, when you do it in vitro, when you put all the sperm in a dish with an egg, then you put the motility factor out of play a little bit. So normally the the best swimmer will make it to the egg, but now, it's a shorter distance because they're all put in a dish close to the egg. So maybe the sperm that doesn't have this great
0: uh,
1: ability to swim will still be able to fertilize the egg.
0: Have people ever tried to put like a maze in a dish, like a, a mini maze, to make the sperm <laughs> swim through? Would they do that to, yeah. to uh, simulate motility?
1: Yeah, that's a good yeah. that's a good idea. But no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen that. Um, but I've been having similar <laughs> thoughts that. Maybe one should try to get the sperm with the best motility for in vitro fertilization, because what we see is that the motility correlates with a smaller RNA content that in mice has been shown to be correlated to the uh, metabolic health so but but these all these experiments are so difficult to do in humans you almost need model organisms to study it.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, very good. What's the best way for listeners to find out more and to check out the new paper that just came out and, you know, to ask questions?
1: Yeah, so the new paper is in PLOS Biology, so they can find it on the, their website or the website or my Twitter account.
0: And what's a, is there a good website for them to go to to contact your lab or find out about your work?
1: Uh, yes, so I have a website on my university you can go there and look.
0: And we'll provide that in the show notes. Okay, great. Bonita, it's been a good call. I appreciate you coming. I know it's uh, probably evening for you there. So thank you for staying late. And uh, thanks for coming. It was fun. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome,